Paul's living into the crucifixion today. So 6 a.m., Jesus has come off of uh, multiple beatings, false accusations with the religious leaders, and now they're bringing Jesus before Pilate. And we're going to see here that Jesus is found innocent and ultimately condemned. So for the next three hours, Jesus goes through some incredible stuff. And so we begin off uh, with uh, the Bible here where it says, Then they led Jesus, that would be the scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, to the governor's headquarters, and the governor of the town of Caiaphas. And it was early morning, and they themselves did not enter into the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. How hypocritical, right? They just had 52 violations of their own law to falsely accuse and try Jesus, and now they were bringing him before Pilate, and that's like they're doing the righteous thing. And we all kind of have that tendency within ourselves, right? Always be right. Right? Facebook is a good example of that. Right? And then we touch on it. We're going to change it. You get the picture. So, you know, here they are pretending that they got things together, moving into this, and Jesus was about to go before Pilate. And so Pilate went outside to them and he said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now there's a law right there. Their law allowed them to, to put people to death according to blasphemy and defiling the temple. They were allowed to carry out their religious law. And in this case, the punishment, the capital punishment for that particular offense would have been stolen. And so here they are bringing Jesus with those two accusations to Romans, which the Romans could care less about the religious law. Saying, so we got this guy that's bringing up evil, and we want to present him to you to say that you need to condemn this man. He needs to be found guilty and put to death. Now, it's really interesting that you put in the mind here because the Messiah is very clearly prophesied in Isaiah and Psalms and 700 to 1,000 years before actually those happened that the Messiah would actually be flogged and crucified, two things that did not exist at the time they were prophesied. And yet, it had to be done in a way where nobody would come to Christ to face. Because think about it, if the Romans were just about to crucify the Messiah, then the religious people would rise up and, and fight because this is their God, their person. But notice that what happened is, is that you have an impossible situation to manipulate. You can't orchestrate the fulfillment of these prophecies as an individual, which was some would claim that Jesus historically really wasn't the Messiah. He just thought he was this religious leader, and he just kind of seen these things and manipulated the scriptures. But that really doesn't wash up because he had to offend the Jews enough to obey the one. He had to somehow be found guilty before Roman law to be crucified to fulfill all that Scripture is prophesying about 700 to 1,000 years before the event of the happened. And to mention, he would have to orchestrate where he would be born and what family line he would come from. And so when you start adding up the prophecies, just none of them start to become statistically impossible for a human being to manipulate and to fulfill. This is overwhelming support that in the midst of what man thinks they're doing to control, God is actively working out his own plan. But Pilate finds himself in this place, right? He's facing a huge dilemma because there's all kinds of tension between him, the Jews, Peter, and the Roman leaders. There's this political and social tension that's going on that really makes this a very challenging place. You see, Pilate is trying to move up 
a new political rank within the Roman Empire. He wants to be in the inner circle of Caesar, which is the friends of Caesar. And one of the things that he did was to try to pay tribute to Caesar by putting all of these images of Caesar in the court of the Gentiles in the temple. Now, when that's offensive to the Jews, and why that's a flattering thing for Caesar is that any time that you saw that image, you were required as a citizen to bow and say, Caesar is Lord. So he takes the image of Caesar, plasters it all over the temple wall, where the Jews say there's only one God and he will serve that God only. And you can imagine what happened. A huge, incredible fight happened. Hundreds of people died in the temple courtyard because of this. So he has that tension. He has Herod, his rival, who's also coming to be up in the race and spreading all kinds of rumors about him. You know, so you have all of these things going on, and now he has his tribe. You got the Jewish people that are once again in an uproar. You got this fragile relationship between him and Caesar. And Caesar at this time has all kinds of mental issues. And he's off his rocket, and he just flips out and kills people for no reason at all. So you've got all of this tension, and he's standing here having to navigate everything that's going on. And here is Jesus brought before him of Jews, and he has to find a way out. So here's the question. Jesus, to figure out who he is, what's going on, and finds him innocent. And he comes back out and tells him that. And then they come out and it finds out that Jesus is the king of the Jews and there's some galleries. So there you go. He's like, I think I found my first one. Because the I'm not an overdoing I'm over the So I'm going to send him to Herod, my rival. I'm going to make Herod deal with this. And so he thinks he finds a way out. And so what's really interesting about Herod is that you need to remember that it was his dad that freaked out when the Messiah was born. And actually ordered the execution of all male children in Bethlehem under the age of two, just to try to get rid of this rival. And so Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and they said to him, "You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to." Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. And so he goes through two trials. Pilate finds him innocent. Harry questions him, is not impressed with him, doesn't find him guilty of anything, so he's found innocent, brought back to politics. Pilate's coming back out and saying, Listen, guys, you know, this isn't playing out. You're accusing him of being a king, you're accusing him of being a threat to the Roman culture, you're accusing him of all these things. I don't have nothing to do with it. So still the crowd rises up, screams, and says, you know, we want him dead, we want him crucified, so Pilate still has to find another way out, so here's another opportunity. He says, let's offer the release of Jesus of Barabbas from death row. So he appeals to a custom that happens every Passover. And he says, but you have a custom that I should release one man to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Now, we learned other things about Barabbas. We learned that he was a, a murderer, and that, he was a, that he was involved in insurrection. He was not a good man at all. He was a horrific man. He was on death row. He was in prison. And so Pilate's thinking, here's what I'll do. I'll take this Jesus guy, 
who really hasn't done anything wrong, who the ultimate testimony of his life is to love people, share the grace of God, he has really brought back the religious hierarchy of things back down to common people and, and, and has communicated this message that God loves and redeems all people. He healed the sick, he has cured the lame, he has caused those that were blind to see. Jesus has done nothing but good. And I'm going to compare him against the worst possible person that I have on death row. And I'm going to put him in front of a guy that's guilty of insurrection, who is a threat to your family and community, who is a murderous zealot, who would do anything to take control of society. He puts him to me and says, he left me and says, this is me. It's certainly going to take you. And he screams, not this man, Barabbas, give it Barabbas. Now think about that. They chose a, a horrific name. Who do you want? We want Barabbas. We want that guy over Jesus. But what's most powerful is that this story isn't about human decisions. This is about the real nature of God. God stepping into humanity relentless and recklessly willing to do whatever it takes to redeem humanity. The real power here is that God is God. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish and have everlasting life. God Himself offers this gift of grace to all who would receive, no matter who they are the way in, and that's them who you choose. He brought us to the horrific world. He said, God, that you know, that we look at our lives, we can tell ourselves to who God is, God chooses to die to redeem us, regardless of what our choice is. So the question is, what will we choose? When we're faced with who we're going to embrace, will we embrace the Bible or we embrace our rebellion against our Christianity? And this is the power of this moment. See, Father knew that Jesus. For us to be treated like the rabbit, so that you and I, so that the rabbit could be treated like Jesus. Who pays the price for our rebellion, no matter how far it goes? Either God does or we do. Think about the freedom that we're about to have. Apart, that doesn't work. They still scream and say, You are Barabbas, it's crucified. And so Paul tries to find a way out. And so he encourages Jesus to be flogged. Now, this is what's really challenging here because, see, what flogging looked like was incredibly bruising. You know, some, some commentators will hear that Jesus was hit 39 times. And what they're doing is they're refusing to reaffirm that he was flogging, which was with a stick. Okay? They beat you with a stick, and the punishment was 40, 
by lashes, but they would take one off and take them as well. But Jesus was like, you know, punished under Roman slaughter. He was punished under, I mean, under Jewish slaughter. He was punished under Roman slaughter. And what they would do is they would tie you to a stump or chain you to a stump or a tree and draw you to your knees. And what they would do is they would get what is called polymerase which is a sort of uh, wooden handle with metal metal straps. Some of them longer, some of them shorter. And at the end of them, you had pieces of metal from a brain and stuff that was embedded in them. And it was designed to latch onto your flesh and rip the flesh off of your body. And what they would do is they would, they would bring in somebody that would oversee what was going on, who would watch the Bible signs and watch the person being flogged. And the whole goal was to bring you within the least of your life. And then the guard would just take that corner on top and just win it from you. And then they would lay that whip into your back and would dig into your flesh and rip it up over and over and over And it is to bring kingdom, to satisfy the rebellion of people. The overwhelming pain. We're talking exploding of ribs and seemingly flesh being ripped off of his body. But he was pierced for the transgressions. And he was crushed for the iniquities that were on him with a chastisement of the punishment of God. And with his wounds, we are healed. And Jesus was pierced through by the cross, emotionally and physically. You know, the, the, the weight of him is saying, well, he was to be beaten to pieces. When we touch on transgressions, we're talking about our ability against God, our desire to run away from God at any point, to live for ourselves and not hold to Him at all. So when we talk about iniquity, we're talking about those specific acts that we carry out in that rebellion, those specific sins. He's saying, no matter whether you're rebellious, no matter how far you go, every attitude and action of your life brought punishment upon Christ so that we can bring you peace. That's the point of flogging. So it was like every laugh that came down on the back of Christ and every part of his body that was ripped off of him. He was saying, I love you and forgive you for your rebellion and your sin. This is God's statement to humanity. This word in the Hebrew, even though it's really picturesque, it really means one word, it means a series of words to describe it. It talks about having a holy life. We're not talking about bending up the sky and, and, and still being able to see all this stuff. It's God saying, I feel you. I see you completely different, completely new. And so you see this in the New Testament where it talks about that God made Jesus to lead us in to be sent on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God 
treat Jesus like a sinner so he can treat us like the perfect son of God with whom he is well pleased. He sees us perfect and spotless because of our faith in Jesus. In other words, when God looks at your life as a believer and you're still struggling and you're still wrestling, there is not an ounce of anger or wrath that remains within God against you and your sin. And I'm not saying that so you can live free from sin because anybody that really wrestles with the weight of that understands that it captures your heart. Only a completely corrupt and harsh person would spit on the face of somebody and say, no, thank you. But most of us, when we understand grace, it doesn't set us free to sin, it sets us free to not sin. And that's the powerful statement that he makes here. Like I was threatened to give me a translation, but because of our sins, he was wounded, beaten because of the evil he did, he was healed by the punishment he suffered, made whole by the blood he was healed. And now, as we come up to the crucifixion, the next six hours, Jesus will experience the incredible agony of the cross. So Jesus came out after being flogged, wearing a crown of thorns, and put a robe, and Pilate said to him, Look, here's the man. And when the chief priests and the temple guards saw him, they shouted, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take you take him then and you crucify him. I find no reason to condemn him. Now, what's interesting here is I want you to get the idea of being in a stadium because, see, they're in the court of Pilate, and there are, at this point, estimated about a couple thousand people that are surrounded because news has started to spread that Jesus has been arrested and he's been condemned. He's being flogged, and it's everybody in Jerusalem has passed over. The city is already bustling with people coming in for their sacrifice on the day of atonement, and so this is a big, big deal. And when the religious leaders would uh, about a couple hundred of them start yelling, crucify him, it just starts to echo through the entire group of people to this deafening roar that you can hear throughout the city. Standing for the very people that he's about to be pierced for on the cross. Not defending himself, though he had better not to. Not laying down wrath, even though he had better Standing on the cross for the compassion of the Psalm 22 gives us probably the clearest picture of the agony that is going on in the cross. The blood poured out like water, and all my bones are hitched in my heart of my glass. It is melted within my breath. My strength is dried up like a hot bird, and my tongue is fixed to the my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet, and I can count all my bones. And they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. One word describes the pain. It's excruciating. There is no word to describe the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross, and to make a word of it. And that's where that word comes from, excruciating. It's translated in English as excruciating, which means as a cross. 
You see what's going on here. The Roman crucifixion was an incredibly so not only was Jesus flawed, and he never received flogging or crucifixion in intensity. That's unique. He did not get both of them. But what's unique about this is that not only did he experience the flogging, he then had to be crucified. And what they would do is they would lay you down on that beam and they would drive the nails to this part of the wrist, not here. They drive it to this part of the wrist. And if you're, if you can grab your fingers, grab your thumb, and kind of come right where those two bones come together. Now, if you to press down in there until you feel that nerve. It's called your knee and nerve. And if you press it just right, you're going to feel the pain shoot all the way up, right? This is where the nails would have laid. They would have wiggled around the arteries, found that nerve, and drove the nail in there because that's going to hold you. And they stretched Christ out over the cross, and they nailed his hands and his feet. And what they would do with his feet is they would slightly bend them because you were overextended as you are nailed to the cross. And it was very important because it was a death of slow suffocation. You could inhale pain, but you could not exhale. You have to stand to complete your breathing cycle to push it on your feet on that day. And they would humiliate you. Strip you naked. They would lay you on the cross. They would bring you out there and just allow you to suffer. And the Bible says that in Psalm 22, verse 1, that he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the time where he, for the first time in Jesus' existence, that he ever felt separated from the Father, that ever feel that tension that you and I have come so accustomed to live with, this separation because of sin. And then he goes on and he talks about, you know, my spirit grows within me. It's like this roaring pain that's going on inside. And he says, my bones are out of joy because, see, when they would lift up the cross and drop down on the wall about a few feet, and when it lands, everything was a tears. And so Jesus is hanging there. His bones are out of joy. He talks about his heart being like wax. It's this idea of intensity to just melt away. So he's experiencing this, this inner pain and burning. It's like this whole idea of heart failure. You know, he's just experiencing this incredible burning pain throughout his entire body. And it talks about that his mouth, his tongue, swelled and stuck to the roof of his mouth. Severe dehydration. And you can tell all of my bones, the bodily fluid and everything that sustains him is wiped out. And that means that when Jesus would stand up to breathe and when he would stand up and speak words like, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Today you will be with me in paradise. You know, uh, you know, son, take care of your mother. Mother, take care of your son. When he's asking for, for John to watch over his mom, all of these statements on the cross, he had to peel the, the, the tongue off of the roof of his mouth to speak these words of compassion. And question his own If God only saves you halfway, if God only forgives you a little bit, this army will hit it Because he did not do it. He was plowing straight into it. Why? 
And she looked at it and said, yeah, I probably don't love you for long.
and they would also place their hand on the goat, and it would be sent out on the scapegoat, and they would teach each other as far away from you and as far away from God as possible. Give you two images. The fact that they just forgive you mentally, but He gives you for real. And those two images were something. Every year, it's just symbolic for the nation, for all people. That God loves and wants to forgive you if you will place your faith in that is the message of the Old Testament. It's the message of the New Testament. It's what Jesus has done on the cross. It's the very same thing that Jesus asked for right now. Is it? God, I don't want my way anymore. I don't want my way to get anymore. I want yours. I want your life to be. I want to be restored to you that you feel in your life. I believe that everything you go in Christ makes that possible. Jesus. The Bible says when you do that, you become a new person. The Spirit of God in you, you become something that never existed before. A spiritually alive person that can actually connect, communicate, and walk with God. You can't do that apart from the Spirit of God. And this is the point of Christianity. And so he satisfies. Or take away his world. Well, that's what a king needs to satisfy. He satisfies God's wrath, and he wants to satisfy man's cravings with the rebellion against God. So, what you need to understand is that at noon, the lamb is selected, and when it's 3 p.m., the lamb is killed. And here's the perfect timing of that. At noon, the sky goes dark. Jesus has been hanging on the cross for three hours. It's now noon. The sky goes dark for three hours. The lamb has been selected. God the Father looks down on his face and says, He will be enough. He will be the cross that will take. There will be no more sacrifices. This is it. This is my ultimate statement. Everything that we've read about in the Old Testament goes up to this moment. Everything that we experience on the backside comes down to this very thing that Jesus is going to finish it, is going to be finished for good, and this is going to provide new life for people. No longer are they going to have to go to the temple and rely on a priest. So what do for them? I'm going to be their priest. I'm going to, they're going to be my temple. I'm going to dwell within my people. And what happens is, is that when Jesus breathes his last breath, it's at 3 p.m. It's at 3 p.m. And the significance of that is when the high priest at 3 p.m. on the day of the tournament would blow the shofar, this loud, trumpeting sound throughout the entire uh, uh, city of Jerusalem. And that's when the sacrificial lamb of atonement would be killed. And Jesus breathed his last breath and said, It is finished and fallen into your hands. I can make my spirit. He breathes his last breath at 3 p.m. The shofar blows. And what happens is that an earthquake happens and the whole ground stumbles. People that were dead come up out of the grave and rise again. And that, that, that earthquake shot right through the temple, split it in half and ripped the temple veil um, uh, from top to bottom, showing that God initiated his forgiveness. A six-inch thick piece of fabric was ripped, and, and it was that barrier that kept God's people away from the presence of God on the other side of the curtain. And it was symbolic, saying that no longer will man be kept far from my spirit. I'm going to rip open this thing. I'm going to bust the world through with my spirit, and I'm going to inhabit my people. And that's the heart of the cross. This is what Jesus said New life. Not religion, not ritual. The Spirit of God that lives within us that allows us to walk with Him and to know Him and to be changed by Him. 